The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Good morning, Shades. Um, the scripture reading for this morning is Matthew five thirty-one through 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. So I do invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and I imagine that after hearing the passage read for this morning, you are expecting to hear a sermon on divorce. And here's the deal. Yes, we will talk a lot about divorce this morning, but my sermon is not ultimately about divorce because this passage is not ultimately about divorce. I think that's clear. I think we will see it clearly because I think it's clear when we see this passage in its context. And that's what we're going to strive to do this morning. But what I'm not going to be striving to do this morning is to lay out for you everything that the Bible teaches cover to cover on divorce and remarriage. Scripture has a lot more to say on this topic than just these two verses right here in Matthew chapter 5. And if I were to try to cover the whole of what Scripture has to say about divorce and remarriage, we would miss the main point of Jesus' words right here in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I have preached a sermon before where my goal was to lay out Scripture's overarching teaching about divorce. In fact, if you look at the back of your bulletin, down at the bottom, you will find a shorthand reference as a way to help you find that sermon if you've got questions. Basically, you just go to our website, shadesvalley.org, you hover your mouse over the podcast tab, and in the drop-down menu, you select Sermon Archives. At the top of that page, there's a search bar. Just search the word divorce. You will find it. You'll find the sermon on divorce, remarriage, and the gospel. There I am trying to lay out that overarching teaching. But for the rest of this morning, what we're going to do is zoom in on Jesus' words right here in verse 31 and 32. These words that that are all too often misunderstood. They're, They're misinterpreted because we fail to hear them in their context. Uh, several years ago, uh, one night, I remember Holly and I, we had decided, uh, after we put the kids to bed, we had decided to send a video birthday message to my nephew. I think he was turning 13 or something like that. And so we, we proceeded to record ourselves singing happy birthday in the most ridiculous voices we could come up with at the top of our lungs, as off-key as we could get. Just, you know, standard making fools of ourselves for the sake of our nephew. And I remember, like, as we finished doing that, a seven-year-old Karis burst through the door, like, wide-eyed, confused, and frankly looking, looking afraid. Holly and I died laughing as Karis described to her, described to us her experience of what she had just heard. Apparently, 
Our singing was so bad and off pitch that she thought tornado sirens were going off. <laughs> Hence her, her fear. But you can see how she got there. Like, if you think about it from her perspective, she thought everybody in the house was asleep. All of a sudden, there's a loud wailing sound. Like, through her experience, through her contextual lens, there was only one logical conclusion. Those must be sirens. There must be a tornado. She was completely oblivious to our context of singing a ridiculous birthday song for our our nephew. So she misunderstood. She misinterpreted what she heard. All too often, this is what happens with Jesus's words about divorce in Matthew chapter 5. We hear them through our modern cultural context, through what we think about when we think about marriage and divorce and remarriage. And thus, we misunderstand Jesus's words. We misinterpret them. We've We've got to see these verses through the lenses of the context of the context that they are actually in. We've got to see them through the lens of the context they're actually in if we want to understand them and what they're ultimately about, which isn't even actually divorce. It's not what these verses are ultimately about. So, rest of this morning, I want to try and unpack Jesus' words through three contextual lenses. The literary context, the cultural context, and the Christ context. I want to try and unpack his words through those three contextual lenses so that we may see what Jesus is actually saying to the scribes, to the Pharisees, to his disciples, to you, to me, because these words ultimately apply to all of us. Not just to those who've been married or divorced or remarried. These words apply to all of us. I think we will see that clearly. See it with me. First, through the literary context. It's our first lens. We've got to see Jesus' words in their literary context. If I was going to sum up for you the literary context right here, I would say it is the sermon and the six examples for righteousness' sake. I'll unpack what I mean by that. But the literary context is the sermon on the mount and the six examples for righteousness' sake. Let's begin reading together Matthew 5 and verse 31. Jesus says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce but or i've made the argument to you that a better translation would be and and i say to you just focus in on the first four words right there it was also said in other words jesus has been making a series of statements thus far about what has been said and i say to you and this falls within those series of statements. It was also said. In other words, Jesus is connecting what he is saying right here in verses 31 and 32. He's connecting it to everything that came before it. In other words, he's not giving us an isolated teaching on divorce. No, what he's saying right here is a small part of a larger thing that he is saying. Because there's a larger literary context, namely the entire sermon on the mount. These two verses right here are a very small part of a much larger sermon. If you remember, throughout this series, I've been arguing that this whole thing, Matthew 5 to 7, the whole thing actually is a sermon. It's a, it's a collective whole. In other words, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is not Matthew's random collection of different teachings from 
from Jesus. So you can just kind of use it as a reference guide. Of, well, what does Jesus teach about anger? Okay, well, we'll go here. What does he teach about lust? We go here. What does he teach about divorce? We go right here. No, these aren't isolated teachings on different topics. This is a sermon with a central point. And I think, from what we've seen thus far, I think that we can all agree that this sermon as a whole is not ultimately trying to lay out everything Jesus teaches on divorce. Because I think we can all agree the Sermon on the Mount is not ultimately about divorce. What is it about? We've been talking about over and over and over again. The Sermon on the Mount is about the greater righteousness of life in the kingdom of Christ. It's what the whole thing's about. The greater righteousness of life in the kingdom of Christ. We've seen that since the very beginning, have we not? Christ, through this sermon, is calling us to life in his kingdom. And if you remember specifically back in Matthew 5 and verse 20, remember that's the thesis statement of the sermon. And in verse 20, he shows us that life in his kingdom is life of a greater righteousness than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he has shown us ad nauseum what that means. The the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees we've been shown again and again is merely an external righteousness. Scribes and the Pharisees, they didn't care anything about the internal condition of their heart. They just wanted to be seen doing the right thing. Their righteousness was only concerned with external action, not with internal affection. And Jesus looks at that and says, no. That's not real righteousness. He says "In, in his kingdom... His people have a greater righteousness than that. Because they have a righteousness of a transformed heart. Transformed internal affections that love Him and love God. And their external actions flow out of that. That's what the whole sermon is about. So that's what this passage is ultimately about as well. We've got to see the larger literary context i i know that that's what this passage is ultimately about not just because of the large literary context of the sermon on the mount but even getting zooming in a little bit more i know it because of the literary context of the six examples do you remember this in matthew chapter 5 most of matthew chapter 5 is taken up with jesus giving us six examples six examples of this greater righteousness that he's been describing specifically what this greater righteousness looks like with regard to the word of God. In other words, he's showing us, here's what it looks like to live in line with the word of God, not just externally, not just doing the right actions, but but internally, to have your heart transformed with real internal affections that then overflow in life lived in line with the, the word of God. Six times he's showing us the ways that the scribes and the Pharisees relate to the Word of God merely for external righteousness' sake. And subverting that to show us how we should relate to the Word of God through the righteousness of a transformed heart. You remember the examples we've covered so far? You remember example one from a couple of weeks ago? Example one was not... Example one was, was about not merely keeping the sixth commandment externally by not murdering people. Great if you do that, but Jesus actually goes after your internal affections. 
His first example is about internally having a heart that's transformed to fight against anger and hate. You remember example two from last week? Example two was about not merely keeping the seventh commandment by externally not committing the act of adultery. No, it was about internally having a heart transformed to fight against lust. And do you remember the third example? I hope that you do after today because this is example three. Verses 31 and 32. That's why it begins with, it was also said. For the third time, Jesus is revealing a way that the scribes and the Pharisees relate to the Old Testament Word of God merely externally. And this third example concerns divorce. But, but I, hope, I hope that you see that the literary context has shown us this isn't ultimately about divorce. That, that would be like saying my sermon this morning is ultimately about Karis mishearing mine and Holly's singing. No, that was just an example of a larger point. This is an example of a larger point. This passage is ultimately about the greater righteousness of a transformed heart. We see that through the literary context of the Sermon on the Mount and these six examples for righteousness' sake. Jesus is using divorce as another example of how the Pharisees' righteousness is merely external. Great. How is it an example of that? In order to see that, we've got to look at Jesus' words through our second contextual lens, the cultural context. The cultural context. If I was going to sum up this lens for you, the cultural context, I would say it this way. The debate over divorce for the husband's sake. I'll explain, I'll unpack all of that, but that's the cultural context right here. It's a debate over divorce for the husband's sake. Look again at verses 31 to 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, that's appearing somewhere in the Old Testament. We've just been told it was said. And I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, just, just put a pin in the verse right there. Jesus, Jesus is referencing Deuteronomy 24 right here. If you go back and you look at the opening of Deuteronomy 24, there is a law there that talks about a husband giving his wife a certificate of divorce. And that passage was hotly debated in Jesus' day. Now, primarily, the, the debate centered around what were legitimate grounds for a husband to divorce his wife. And, and the debate raged over that because the text in Deuteronomy 24 is pretty vague. It just says a husband... And give his wife a certificate of divorce if he finds some indecency in her. All right? What does that mean? And that's what they debated. Primarily, there were, there were two main interpretations that came from two very infamous teachers, one named Shammai, one named Hillel. Both these guys are dead by the time Jesus is speaking right here. But Shammai had taught that some indecency had to indicate some type of inappropriate sexual behavior. There's a, a range of things, but it had to be in that realm. So, so Shammai would say, 
According to Deuteronomy 24, the only legitimate reason a husband could give his wife a certificate of divorce had to be that. However, you had the other influential rabbi of the day named Hillel, and he said some indecency could pretty much mean anything. Anything the husband didn't find pleasurable. All the way down to burnt bacon. Actually, he didn't say bacon. They were Jews. They would not have said bacon. Um, but seriously, you can look it up in rabbinical writing. He argued you could divorce your wife over a burnt dinner. That's like written down. I'm not kidding. Which, let me just pause and give an aside really quick on that note. It is crazy in vogue right now amongst Christians to be all into Jewish interpretations of Scripture. Like, the church has got things wrong for a really long time. Let's go back to the Jewish sources and the rabbinical interpretations. They were way closer to the original context. It's got to be more accurate. Listen, that is beneficial to do. I do that in my study. But do not for a second think that they have infallible interpretations. Let the Pharisees be a warning for you against that. Get it wrong. Just as often as we do. We've got to approach Scripture first and foremost before using any outside resource, first and foremost through the lens of Jesus Christ himself and aided by the Holy Spirit of God and surrounded by the community of saints. Then all those other helps are useful. Okay, side note, done. Anyway, Hillel says you can divorce her for whatever reason you want to. And here's the point. Both of those interpretive schools had actually missed the point of Deuteronomy 24 altogether. Because in context, Deuteronomy 24 is not about the reasons a husband can divorce his wife. No. Deuteronomy 24, in context, is actually aimed at providing protections for a wife if her husband should divorce her. It falls in, in, in the context of a host of laws that are about protecting the vulnerable in society. And in the ancient Near East, women had virtually no rights. But God, among his people, provided protections. And Deuteronomy 24 insists on the provision of a certificate of Divorce. That was not required everywhere in the ancient Near East. But it insists upon this because this was a legal document that provided protection for a divorced woman. It protected, we don't have time to get into all the specifics of this, but it protected her from public shaming. It protected her from her former husband. It protected her finances. It protected her, it, it, it also protected her by granting her the full legal right to remarry if she so choose. Chose. That's what Deuteronomy 24 was about. But the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day have taken a law that was for the wife's sake and made it for the husband's sake. The overwhelming majority of Jews in Jesus' day used Deuteronomy 24 in the debate of divorce for the husband's sake to say he could walk away from his wife for any reason he so chose. Find another woman that you like? Go for it. See somebody else that you're interested in? But, but you don't want to actually like commit adultery and ruin your pharisaical reputation, you know, as a keeper of the law. No problem. You can use any reason you like to leave your current wife. Go get that new lady. 
it is perfectly legal and in line with God's Word. Do you see what the scribes and the Pharisees had done? They basically had found a way, a loophole, to legalize their adultery. To leave their wives for other women and make it look like they were living in line with God's Word. They were sin laundering. Y'all familiar? Money laundering, y'all know this term? Money laundering is taking money that you've obtained illegally and passing it through a legitimate business so it looks like you got it legally. The, the term, it's rumored to come from Al Capone. Um, so back in Prohibition days in the 20s and such when sale of alcohol was illegal, Al Capone was just making money hand over fist off illegal alcohol sales but needed a way to clean up the dirty money. So he set up laundromats all over Chicago. I love the irony right there. Sets up laundromats to pass the money through, launder his money, make the dirty money clean. That's money laundering. That's what the scribes and the Pharisees are doing, not with money, but with their sin. They are taking sinful, adulterous actions, leaving their wives for other women. And they're passing it through the law to make it look like they're in the right. And their actions are clean. They're sin laundering. Externally looking like they're doing the right actions. But internally pursuing adulterous affections. Do you see? Do you see now how this is another example Another example of, of how the Pharisees' righteousness was merely external. Do you, see, do you see how this is not ultimately about divorce? Do you see how this applies to every last one of us? Because, Shades, I will be the first to admit I am guilty of sin laundering. Externally wanting to be seen is keeping the Word of God while internally wanting to do whatever I want. I think we are all guilty of trying to use Scripture itself to justify our sin. How do we do I mean, we can think of a million different ways that we, we do this. Perhaps, but perhaps just for a few examples this morning, we need look no further than the Pharisees. Their sin, their sin laundering was primarily about sex and power. They, they used the Word of God, they twisted it, tried to create those loopholes, they twisted it to be able to justify pursuing their adulterous sexual marital desires. Do we do that? Do we try to take what God's Word says about marriage, about sexuality, tweak it, twist it, to make it line up with whatever desires I feel at the time? Shades, people write whole books trying to argue that Scripture itself lines up with our modern sexual ethics doesn't 
don't be deceived. That is pharisaical sin laundering. And it will ultimately lead you to a place that brings damage and death. Whereas sexuality, marriage within the way that God designed it ultimately leads you to Christ and life. We don't just do this with sexuality like the Pharisees. We do it with power too. Is that not what they're doing right here? The Pharisees are are taking God's word, Deuteronomy 24, that's supposed to protect the wife from being abused, abandoned, victimized. And they're using it to promote their own power to use and abuse. Shades, we, we need not look far to see the word of God being twisted this way all throughout history. All we got to do is take a quick peek into the history of our own country. Did not those who were in power use this book, twist it, mar it to enslave an entire people group? What white Christians, those are some heavy quotes, used this word to justify their superiority over their black brothers and sisters. Shades, many still do that. That's sin laundering. Or, let's bring it even a little bit closer to home. Let's bring it into our homes. Christian husbands. Christian husbands have definitely definitely never been guilty of using passages about wives submitting to their husbands for abusive purposes, have they? Twisting the Word of God to promote one's power to use it to abuse. Never mind the fact that those passages are defining headship and submission. These are good biblical category shades. I'm not denying them. I love them, and I think they're good, gospel-loving words. But these passages, they're defining headship and submission in relation to the good, loving, sacrificial relationship of Christ and the church. Honestly, we, we, we could talk about any relationship that we find ourselves in. We could talk... We could, We could talk about this issue in work relationships. We could talk about it in parent-to-kid relationships. Discipline, that is a good biblical category. How many times has a parent or an abuser used the word to twist it on a kid? To use, to abuse. We could talk about it in between the relationships of teachers and students. We could talk about it in roommate relationships. We could talk about it in dating. We could talk about it in friendships. Friendships. Holding one another accountable. That is a great, beautiful, biblical category. I cannot tell you the number of times I have watched that category be used so that one friend could say whatever they wanted to to another person. Carte blanche. Without any penalty. I'm holding them accountable. No, you're insulting and degrading them is what you're doing. We can twist this word 
in, in any of those contexts, in any of those relationships, to try and justify using some kind of power dynamic to abuse. We, we're all, we are all, I, first and foremost, chief of sinners. We are all guilty of sin laundering. Externally keeping the word while internally breaking it. And to all of that, Jesus says, no. That, that's what he says to the scribes and the Pharisees in verse 32 with these words. Except on the ground of sexual immorality. Look at that verse again. Verse 32. See it in context. And I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality. Jesus right here is not addressing every possible reason for divorce. Again, if you want to hear all of that, go find that other sermon from back in 2015. Right here, Jesus is specifically addressing the debate over Deuteronomy 24. He's specifically addressing that phrase, some indecency. And what he's saying is that passage out of Deuteronomy 24, it's not about being able to divorce your wife for any reason. No, the word some indecency actually means sexual immorality. In other words, adultery. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you, you can't stretch God's word into a giant loophole to justify your desires for adultery. Jesus is saying you can't externally keep the law while internally breaking it. That's sin laundering, and Jesus says no. Not only that, he goes one step further, reinterpreting Deuteronomy 24 to restore its original intent, which was never to promote the power of abusers, but to protect the abused. That's what Jesus does with the rest of his words right here in verse 32. We see this through our third and final contextual lens, the Christ context. We've got to look at his words right here through the Christ context. If I was going to show, sum up for you what the Christ context is, it's this, the damage and demand for the wife's sake. The damage and demand. Jesus is speaking his words for the sake of the wife. He's revealing the damage that is being done and the demand that he is placing upon those who would do such damage. Look at the rest of verse 32. Jesus says, And I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. With these words... Jesus is interpreting what the Pharisees are actually doing. He's inviting us to see their actions through the lens of him, through the Christ contextual lens. And this is what Jesus says is happening. He says, Pharisees, when, when you divorce your wife, for whatever reason you want, you make her commit adultery. Now, on the surface, those words sound strange to us, but pay close attention to the context and to Jesus' actual words, okay? So first, pay close attention to the context. These words are not isolated. They come in a string of examples, do you remember the example from last week that came right before our passage? Because Jesus made a comparison with adultery there too. All right, if you remember, 
Jesus last week told us lust is like adultery. Anyone who lusts after a woman in his heart has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, Jesus is not there equating lust and adultery as if they are the same thing. They're not. Jesus knows that. No, he's making a comparison. You remember why? He's saying because, like adultery, lust is the expression of sexual desire outside of the covenant relationship for which it was designed. Marriage, that's what, that's what adultery is. is the expression of sexual desire outside of the covenant relationship for which it was designed. Lust is the same thing. But Jesus is not equating lust and adultery. He is, he's making a comparison. He's doing the same thing here. He's saying to the Pharisees, that when they divorce their wives illegitimately, they put her outside of the covenant relationship that was designed to be permanent. You are putting her in a situation outside of marriage that she should have never been in, like adultery. Adultery is a situation outside of marriage that no spouse should ever be in. And Jesus says, you are putting her in that situation. It's your fault. Do you see that? Do you catch that? Don't don't just pay close attention to the context. Pay close attention to Jesus' actual words. Jesus said, if you illegitimately divorce your wife, you make. You make her commit adultery. You put her illegitimately outside of the covenant relationship. You did this. Jesus is not victim-blaming right here. He's not blaming the abused. He's convicting the abuser. He's pointing out the damage being done. And he is demanding something different. Ultimately, he is demanding the protection of the abused. That's what Deuteronomy 24 intended in the first place. The Christ context reveals the damage being done and it reveals the demand that Jesus is making for the wife's sake. You can see this again. Just look at his final words. He basically says this again, but in a little bit of a different way. Look at the very end of verse 32. Jesus says, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus is not saying that a divorced woman is diseased. She's got a big scarlet D and, and don't, don't go near her. Don't Don't touch her. Nobody can remarry her. He's not saying that. I know that. Because to say that would stand in direct contradiction to the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. If you want to know what that's all about, again, go listen to that old sermon. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says that his teaching on divorce and remarriage lines up perfectly with Jesus' teaching. Jesus is not saying the divorced woman has a disease, she cannot be remarried. No, all throughout this passage, Jesus has been aiming his words at men who are using God's word to abuse women. He's doing the same thing here. He he doesn't tell us the details, but his words are aimed at men who would try to use Deuteronomy 24 to justify leaving their wife to marry someone else's for their own abusive purposes. And Jesus is saying, let's call that what it is. It's adultery. 
You use Deuteronomy 24 to try to leave your wife for somebody else. That's what he means when he says if somebody goes and marries a divorced woman. You're leaving your wife to try and go take somebody else's. He, you're basically trying to legitimize wife swapping right here is what Jesus is saying. He says, let's call that what it is. It's called spade a spade. I know that's what his words mean. Just look at the parallel passages. They make it even more explicit. Go, when you get home, look at Matthew 19 and verse 9, or look at Mark 10 and verse 11, where this becomes even more explicit. So, so back up right here and see the full picture of what Jesus is saying to the scribes and the Pharisees. He's coming at this issue from both sides. He says, whether you are illegitimately divorcing your wife or marrying someone else's, you're doing adulterous damage. Pharisees, we're trying to stretch Deuteronomy 24. Whether you are illegitimately trying to abandon, abuse, forsake your wife, or whether you are trying to illegitimately take somebody else's, you are doing adulterous damage. Don't try to launder that sin and clean it up. Don't try to make it look righteous, like it's in line with the word of God. You may be able to fool others externally, but internally Jesus sees the heart and he demands a greater righteousness. The righteousness of a transformed heart. What, what does that look like? I mean, Jesus doesn't give us any more words right here, does he? He just convicts these Pharisees for their practices, but he doesn't reverse them, does he? Actually, he does. He has already given us all we need in order to know what is supposed to be the right thing here in this situation because this is the third example that flows naturally from the first two. His examples of anger, his examples of lust, those were the two things that were leading the Pharisees to divorce their wives. Anger, bitterness, lusting after somebody else's wife. And Christ has already confronted these things with new heart-shaping habits. He's confronted anger with a new heart-shaping habit of true reconciliation. He's confronted lust with a new heart-shaping habit of a spirit-empowered offensive and defensive fight against lust. So, when he confronts the Pharisees over the issue of divorce, he's calling them once again to embrace the greater righteousness he demands. A righteousness that he himself has purchased. A righteousness that he himself empowers. The righteousness of a transformed heart. Shades. Jesus is calling the scribes, the Pharisees, you, me, not to launder our sin, but to truly be made clean by him. What, whatever sin you've tried to launder, any of these listed here, whatever sin you've tried to launder but never actually been able to wash away, the guilt, the shame, Jesus has done that with his blood. 1 John 1.7 I don't care if it's actually murder or if it's just anger, if it's actually adultery or just lust. I don't care if it's unbiblical divorce, if it's sins of sexuality or power. Jesus, according to Colossians 2.14, nailed every last one of those things to the cross and washed away their penalty with his blood. And he rose again to provide you with power. Power to live a new life out of a heart that he is transforming. Shades. Shades, let us be done with sin laundering. We don't have to. We don't have to try to clean it up. 
We don't have to try to make ourselves look any prettier or more righteous than we are. We can come corporately together. This is why we come together week after week corporately and confess our sin together. We come and we're like, yeah, I'm jacked up. Like everybody else here. I don't have to put on face or launder any of this. Shades, let us be done with sin laundering. We don't need it because Christ has made us clean and Christ is making us clean through the righteousness of a transformed heart. Come to him. The entire Sermon on the Mount is him inviting you, arms wide open, come to him, cling to him, be truly, fully, finally clean.